Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. But we are looking at Psalm 46 today. It's a psalm that most of us know because of one specific verse. Um, But my hope and prayer is that our study of this psalm would bless you. And let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 46. To the choir master, to the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountain be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Salah. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for these words. And Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would just grab a hold of our hearts. For one reason, on this snowy Sunday, you have brought us here. Um, So, Lord, speak to us. Encourage us. May we leave this sanctuary knowing that we encountered you, our God. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This particular psalm is a psalm that was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. Martin Luther is the one that pushed the church into the Reformation back in 1517. The building that you are looking at is a castle in the center of Germany. It's in the woodland part of Germany. The name of the castle is Wartburg Castle. It's what they would call a hunting castle 
right? In, in other words, when you took a party and you were going to go hunting, like, like this is their cabin. And this specific location is important because this is where Martin Luther was in hiding for about 10 months. And, and Martin Luther, for most of us, we know him because of his work with the book of Romans, right? And Romans 1.17, the just will live by faith. In other words, that is where he discovered, right, that it isn't through works that we um, are okay in our relationship with God, right? But it is that God himself imputes upon us, the believers, his work, ultimately the work of his son, our Lord and Savior. And if you know your history, right, these are just a few points, right? So Martin Luther, he not only was a theologian, he was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. He was German. He, he was just in a bright individual. He would write a lot of the hymns that we still sing today. But in his wrestling with what the church was doing, he wrote his famous 95 thesis, right? And, and these are 95 critiques of the Roman Catholic Church that was in October 31st of 1517, and he nailed that on the doors of the church in Wittenberg just to make a statement. And that marks the beginning of the Reformation. Because the church was unwilling to receive these critiques, after a period of time, on January 3rd, 1521, Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. But his problems didn't end there, right? And because then the church wanted Martin Luther to recant, to say, you know what, I was mistaken. And, and now the church got all of the regional leaders of Germany to set up a meeting. And that meeting was called the Diet of Worms. Right? And it doesn't mean that Luther was forced to go and have a diet of worms. That's not. Right? The diet is an imperial gathering. Right? Of, of those individuals from the emperor the, or the princess that, that were um, in that time, but also the religious leaders. And it was a week-long gathering, and it was to hear arguments. And Luther would show up and, and argue, right, in reference of why the church was so wrong, and, and here's the thing, right, and that we need, 
Luther was not looking to start a new denomination. He wanted the church to reform. Right. So from our point of view, the Reformation is still going on. Right? Because the church, the Roman Catholic Church has not reformed. It's reformed with some things, but not in all things. Right? So, so they're still reforming. So at the end of this gathering, one of Martin Luther's friends heard that they were going to capture him, and ultimately they were going to um, kill Martin Luther. So they kidnapped him, and they took him to this castle. And while at the castle, he did some, some amazing things. He took the Old Testament, and he translated it in German so that the people would have the New Testament in their hands, in their own language. He would write many hymns, and one of the hymns that he would write is one that most of us know, a mighty fortress is our God. But here's the thing, right? For Martin Luther, that was some of the most darkest moments in his life. But history shows us that this psalm is in reflection to some dark seasons in the life of Judah. And again, and as much as this psalm was helpful to Martin Luther, and this psalm was also helpful to the people during the 8th century B.C., I'm encouraged because it's a psalm that's also good for us today. So the history of this psalm, the reason why the psalm was written was the Assyrians, right? We've been hearing a lot about the Assyrians, right? And, 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 and just so that you have an idea of who the Assyrians, right, it's the Assyrians are the individuals that Jonah originally went to, and he didn't want it, and he ended up in the belly of the fish. The Assyrians is where Nineveh is. So at this time, there was a king, Sennacherib, right? And he was forcing a campaign down, heading towards Jerusalem, so he conquered everything along the Mediterranean coast. He went past Jerusalem, and he went to this little fortress called Lachish. And there he set up camp. And from there, he was operating his campaign. And you can read in 2 Kings... Um, Chapter 17, 18, and 19, the, the accounts of this campaign. Now, the picture you see here, right, it's, this is what Jerusalem would have looked like during the time of Hezekiah, right? But, but I want to point out some parts so that way it can make more sense to you, right? So let me see. Um, so you see the little piece in the front that looks like a pinky, right? Right. So, so the, 
The pinky, without the little knuckle here, right? That's what we would call the city of David, the old city of David, right? And, and it's that city of David that, um, that David himself settled. And the wall that's surrounding the city of David, that little pinky, that's the wall that Nehemiah rebuilt, right? Now, when you look at the knuckle where the temple is, that's what Solomon built, all right? Then, all the way down here, let's see, you see this? Oh, my pointer doesn't work so good. Right, so down at the tip of the finger, that's where we would have the Pool of Siloam. And then from the edge of the Pool of Siloam, you have this outer wall. That's called the Broad Wall. Right? And that wall was built by King Hezekiah in the 8th century B.C. And all those inhabitants are the inhabitants that were refugees that were coming down from the northern country as the Assyrians were coming and attacking the ten tribes of Israel. So eventually, Hezekiah has this broad wall. And if you was to go to Jerusalem today, there's a portion of the broad wall that you can actually look at. Right? And, and you can walk through the old city of David. Well, anyway, near the bottom here, right? So let me see. Right? This little section here. You see where it says Hezekiah, and you go to the left, there's like a little tower that's protruding? From that section, under the city of David, all the way to the Pool of Siloam, Hezekiah, because he was also one who constructed um, things, he dug a tunnel, and that tunnel also was allowed to um, have a stream of water that would constantly support all of Jerusalem. So Hezekiah was all set. The king of Assyria sends his messengers, and he says to King Hezekiah, stop being a fool. Can't you see that we have just conquered every kingdom all the way from the northern part right up to your doorstep, and their gods were not sufficient enough to protect them. Your God is not going to protect you against our mighty army. So then the Assyrian king asked for tribute, and they gave them silver and gold. And Hezekiah took the gold plating off the doorpost of the temple. And God got mad at that. And at that time, the prophet Isaiah was there with Hezekiah, right? And, and I'm going to paraphrase, right? Isaiah says to Hezekiah, what are you doing? Right? That's, don't be full of fear. Our God is mighty. And then the messenger comes back, and he says to Hezekiah, 
Look, your God isn't going to protect you. You tore down all the high places, all the Asherah poles, all the, the places of Baal worship. Right? And, and that just points that bad theology doesn't help. Right? In other words, Hezekiah was supposed to tear those things down because he's the one that brought back the worship of God. His father was wicked. But then the men that are standing at the wall would, would say to the messenger, speak to us in Hebrew. Because they didn't want the men at the wall to get frightened. Because they didn't understand. In other words, they wanted them to speak in Aramaic because they understood Hebrew. And the messenger goes, nope, I'm going to talk to you in the language that you understand. So they sent a message to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah took it and spread it on the floor of the temple. And there he knelt and prayed. And as a result of that prayer is where we get this psalm. Right? So it's a long journey to get to the psalm. Right? And... And we just need to remember that in the history of the Israelites, the Psalms are written as a result of an event that happened. Right? To the choir master, to the sons of Korah. Right? So the sons of Korah were an extended family of the Levites. And by this time, this was their specific job as part of the priesthood. According to Alamoth. Now, historians believe Alamoth is in reference to something that is high-sounding, whether it's a string instrument or it could be um, young virgins because their tone of voice would be high-pitched. But, but then it would start off, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And... Hezekiah in trouble was knocking at his door, right? And, and all of a sudden, the idea that God is a refuge, that God is a place that you can go to and that he's going to protect you. And he's going to protect you because he has everything that is needed. So in the Hebrew, when Scripture talks about God, this God, right, that's Elohim, so traditionally, El is God, and then Elohim is the sense of a plural God. But it's not as a multiple God. It's a plural God in reference of strength and power and authority. In other words, nobody is equal to that kind of God. And it's that God that we take refuge in. It is that God in which Martin Luther sought refuge in. And he is the kind of God that is available when there's trouble. Now, here's the thing with, there are times where we experience trouble and something's going to happen to you. And there's no way around that. Like, like you know the, that one song we sung, I sought the Lord and that's why I trust him. 
theologically that song is wrong. Because just because I pray doesn't mean that he has to answer. Right? The reason why I just like the song. Right? <laughs> right? But, but theologically, that part of the song is incorrect. Because God does not have to answer. Sometimes I am going to go through tribulation. Sometimes things bad are going to happen. But if I'm willing to wait, there's a part of the story that God has not revealed to me yet that ultimately is going to promote his glory. Not my good, but his glory. But if I stick with God, it becomes my good. So he is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And as a result of that, right, therefore, I will not fear. Though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Salah. Right, and... I haven't heard of a theologian or a commentator propose this idea. This is my idea, right? And, and I believe that as you read these verses and as Hezekiah and the people were safe on the inside part of the walls of the temple and inside by the broad wall, you can't help when you're hearing over 200,000 soldiers marching in chariots on foot that all of a sudden the ground starts to tremble, right? And, and, and when you hear of all the destruction that they impose on all of the 10 tribes, right? It's, it's almost as, because that's what war does, right? But these verses are about lifting your eyes even higher than the, that impending doom. And really what these verses are saying is, is the creator who created, he is also uncreating because he can. Right? And that's the God that we find refuge in because that's the God who has just strength. Right? And, and, in other words, nobody is above him. And then there's this musical piece, Selah, right? And, and most people say that this is, if you're playing the music, this is where the musicians take a, a pause, a rest, right? And, and I'm going to say that this is where you and I as the worshipers, we take a pause and we reflect on what the scriptures say, right? And we exalt him and we worship him because of who he is. He's God. Another psalm takes a different point of view. There's a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst. She shall not be moving. God will help when the morning dawns. Right? And you can't help to... Well, that when you see this river, right, this river is a river of refreshing, it's satisfying, 
And all of a sudden, you have to kind of remember the, the tunnel that Hezekiah dug underneath the city of David where there's constant water. Now, it's not a river. It's a stream. But you got to remember, Jerusalem is an arid desert place, right? And so as much as we're looking at what Hezekiah has done, we're also lifting up our eyes because this is supposed to remind us, right, that from the throne of God, there's supposed to be a river of life that flows through it. That's what Revelation 22 reminds us. And that this river is going to make the city glad. Right? It's almost like we look outside and there's all this snow and a part of us say, you know what, it's, we waited for the snow, the snow, you know what, Ed, I'll be happy when it's gone. Right? And, and, and to some, right, this river, it's like every time you, you look at it and you drink from it, it, it just satisfies And then to know that God is in the midst, like, like he's there at the temple. He's here at the sanctuary in Port Jervis. He's in Montgomery. And the scripture says, right, because he's here, because he's chosen to be here, we will not be moved. Not only are we not going to be moved, but he's going to be available when we need him the most in the morning. Right? Because just before the sun comes up, it seems to be the darkest. Now remember, Jerusalem at this time is surrounded by the army of the Assyrians. Can you imagine for a moment the people who are inside what they're saying to King Hezekiah. Like, what would you say if you were inside the walls and you saw this herd of, of the enemy? And they're saying, let us in, and if you let us in, we'll give you water, we'll give you food. But if you don't let us in, right, here's what they said, right? You will be forced to eat your own dung and drink your own urine, right? And they're saying this day after day after day after day, right? And King Hezekiah is at the temple with those papers, the letter, and he's just praying. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. That first verse that I just read there reminds me of Psalm 1. Psalm 2, I mean, where it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Right? God looks at their efforts and he goes, 
Who are the Assyrians? Right? And here's the thing, right? Sometimes God allows certain things to happen, and as they're happening, we think that we're the ones doing it. And all of a sudden, we want to take credit for what's happening. And all of a sudden, we think, hey, because all of these things have happened and we've been able to exert our power and authority, your God isn't going to stop us. The Lord of hosts is with us, right? And so that's a title that says that the God of the heavenly realm, the CEO of all of the angelic hosts, of everything that has been created, even all of the angelic hosts that have fallen, he's above them all. He's above us. That there's nobody higher than him. In other words, when you say, I have a complaint... You can't go no higher than God. That person, that God, he's with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that's supposed to remind us that God cut a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if you know your history, Jacob wasn't the most righteous guy. His name is a constant reminder that he's a sneak He's a swindler. But here's where you and I can get encouraged. If God is willing to be his God, how much more is he willing to be your God and my God? Right? And to that, we should say amen. He is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth and burns the chariots with fire. These verses are about imposing peace. In other words, there's going to come a time where all of the instruments of war are done with. And he's the one that's going to do away with them. He's the one. That's going to bring an end. And and we're reminded that Scripture says that he will return again. But he won't come the way he came the first time. He's going to come as a conquering king. Right? Because peace can happen two ways. Peace can happen, well, let's have negotiations. Or peace can be when you impose power, right, top down, and says, you know what, this is done with. And that's the kind of peace that God's going to impose upon the earth. And then something strange happens in the psalm, right? We go from hearing The choir masters, the sons of Korah, right? They're the ones that are singing this part of the song right now. And all of a sudden, they stop, and all of a sudden, God steps into the picture. Be still and know that I am God, right? Be still. Now, if you have an old King James translation, 
that would say, cease and know that I am God. But if you were to translate the Hebrew, here's really what it would say. Be quiet. Shut up. Stop talking. Stop trying to make your point and your argument. Just, just, just stop. Right? Because sometimes when we hear, like, right, it's, we have all these nice little posters around, right? And, and somewhere we have that saying, be still and know that I'm God. And it conveys this sense of, okay, l- l- let me take this contemplative posture. <sighs> okay, God, I'm meditating. I'm waiting on you, right? But that's not what it's saying here. What he's saying is, is that you yourself put down your instruments of war. You yourself, right? Because here's the thing, right? So many of us, our, our war, the army that's coming against us, it could be a family member that we're not getting along with. It could be a job that's not working out. It could be finances. It could be something that's just grabbed and, and we're just terrified. And God says, stop trying to figure it out. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, if you're going to spend any time, do one thing, worship me. Don't worship the things you're struggling with. Don't worship the things that you're trying to create, right? It's like, um, I believe one of the most difficult things that believers struggle with is this idea of retirement. Because when I read scripture, retirement isn't in scripture. Right? We are supposed to work and do different work until he calls us home. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan, right? And we shouldn't do our finances so that we can do work beyond, right? In, in, in other words, I always say to individuals, right? It's like when they say to me, oh, I'm trying to figure out my calling, where God wants me, right? And, and here's my answer to that, or should I say my question. It's a, if, if you can imagine and think a few years ahead, right? Like, what would you be doing when you retire? That is your calling, even though you might be 20 years removed from it, right? Because that is the thing that God deposited in you before you were born. But I believe the minute we stop doing anything, all of a sudden our sense of purpose stops. So he says, be still and know that I am God. Right? I, I, I like my translation. Just shut up. Right? right? Just, just shut up. Right? And then it ends, the Lord of hosts is with us, right? It's repeated again. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Salah. He is the one that we can find a sense of safety and not have to worry about it. Now, if you know your story and you know your history and you know your Bible, right after God said, be still and know that I am God, that night... 
That night, God would send an angel of the Lord down into the enemy camp. And scripture would say that 185,000 fell that night just by one angel of the Lord. To the point that the king got nervous and scared, the Assyrian king. And he took the rest of his army all the way back to Nineveh. And he was like, I don't know what just happened, right? And history tells us that he went into his temple and he prayed, trying to figure out, like, what's going on? And here's the thing, right? We have the records of these events because in Assyria there is a stone prism, and it's called the Taylor Prism. And it's got a six-sided um, part that they carve the history. And in that prism has the account of this specific war with King Hezekiah. Right? But, but the winners or the perceived winners of a war never talk about their defeats. Right? Ever. Right? And, and here's what the prism says, right? It's like... King Hezekiah, I surrounded him like a caged bird. But then I went home. <laughs> right? He doesn't mention that 185,000 of his soldiers just died. Right? But that's the God in which we take refuge in. That's the God in which we worship. That's the God that we can trust. And that's the same God that Martin Luther put his faith and trust in. So while he's in that castle hiding, right? And, 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 and here's where I get cynical, right? And, and you might get cynical also, right? It's like he trusted God and he's hiding? Really? It's like, you know what, sometimes God wants us to hide in order for his plan to work out in days and weeks and months to come. So this song, this hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, is, is one that has encouraged the church throughout the years, and, and it definitely encouraged Martin Luther, right? He would say with his friends after he penned it, he would say, Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil have his worst. Can you imagine? Right? In, in, in other words, the devil can't do anything to us. Right? So we're going to hear this song. Um, you can sing. You can... Um, hum, but I hope you enjoy it.
And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.